Well, good morning. It's good to see you again. I got one good morning from somebody. It's good to see y'all. Um, whether you are here in the building or whether you are worshiping with us online, we are thrilled that you chose to come and worship with us today here at Living Hope. If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, I'm Alan. I'm uh, the senior pastor and one of the elders here, and we are absolutely thrilled that you're worshiping with us today. Over the last few months, every Sunday, uh, I've typically said it is good to be here and it's good to see some folks that it's been a while since I've seen them. And I'll just say that there was some hallelujah-ing in the hallway this morning as a, just a fine couple came back in the building to worship with us today. And yet we know it's not about them, it's about the Lord they serve. And we are absolutely thrilled that they are here, and I'm absolutely thrilled that you are here. I would say this, if you are worshiping with us at home at this point, if that's the decision you need to make for health reasons and things like that, we are excited that you're worshiping with us online. At the same time, if you are maybe just comfortable staying at home, God may be calling you, come on back. We need you here uh, to be a part of our church body in the building and we want to worship with you. But again, if you are staying at home for health reasons, we fully support that. We are excited to be walking through the New Testament as a church family this year. We're kind of walking through it. We're not walking Matthew all the way through Revelation, but instead we're, we're kind of following it a little bit chronologically, kind of, sort of. And we are now in the book of Romans. And we have started a new series today. And you can see the graphic on the screen. And it's called Righteousness for the Unrighteous. So today, in the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at the book of Romans to see what God's word has to say to us about his righteousness and our unrighteousness. To kind of set it up, uh, by the way, if you're wondering, what are you talking about, Alan, reading through the Bible, I'll, I'll share this with you. At the bottom of the worship guide, uh, on the backside, there is a place to take notes, and then at the bottom, there is a place that shows you what we're reading. We're reading a chapter a day, five days a week, and it's listed here. And we also have a year-long reading guide that's available in uh, the rack, reading rack out there in the hallway that you're welcome to pick up as well. But to kind of give you the set setting for uh, the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul uh, he had a huge desire to go to the city of Rome to preach the gospel. And because of his excitement to go to Rome to preach the gospel, he wrote a letter to the Romans, to the church in Rome. And there's a little bit something different about this letter versus other letters he wrote. Typically, the Apostle Paul would travel on missionary journeys to a city and be a part of a church start there. And then he would months or weeks or years later write a letter to them because he had been with them in the past and he's following up with them. Romans is a bit of a departure because in the year 57 AD he was not in Rome. He had never been to Rome. He was still wanting to get to Rome and he wrote a letter to them to say guys I cannot wait to get there to see you to meet you and to preach the gospel. And so he's in the city of Corinth on his third missionary journey. And, and while he's in Corinth, he's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And he's writing this letter to the Romans, and he sends it off. Well, a couple years later, he gets to Jerusalem, and he gets arrested. 
The Apostle Paul gets arrested for preaching the gospel, and because he's under arrest there in the city of Jerusalem, and because he's a Roman citizen, he appeals to Caesar and says, I want to appeal my case to Caesar. You see, this is his ticket to be able to go to Rome. How did Paul get to Rome to preach the gospel? He got arrested because he was preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, and now he has the opportunity to get to the city of Rome. So about the year 60, which is about three years after he wrote this letter, he actually gets to Rome to be able to preach the gospel to them. But this morning, we're starting by reading through the book of Romans to see this letter that he wrote a couple years before he got there, where he unpacks incredible Christian doctrine or theology about who God is and who we are and who we can be in Christ. And in fact, it's really the most doctrinal uh, book in the entire, as far as just walking through, um, through elaborate details of what it means to trust in Jesus. And I would encourage you that if you haven't read the book of Romans, to read it with us over the next uh, week or two as we understand who God is and who we are in him. But before we can get to this idea of who we are in God, we first need to understand who he is. And so this idea of his righteousness that God is righteous. What, what does that word mean? We've sung that word righteous or righteousness a lot this morning. What does that word even mean? First of all, I want you to let, to let you know that a variation of the word righteous or righteousness or unrighteousness is used over 70 times in the book of Romans. So the word righteousness is a recurring central theme. What does righteousness mean? It means doing what God requires. Righteousness means to be approved by God. Righteousness means to be faultless or innocent. That's what the word righteousness means. So whenever we unpack this word this morning and look at righteousness and we see that we are unrighteous, we need to understand that righteousness means to do what God requires, to be approved by God, to be faultless and to be innocent. You see, God is a holy, perfect God. God always does what is right. And so the way you can look at righteousness is that God is the standard of righteousness. Ultimately, righteousness points toward being perfect because God is perfect. He is the standard or the criterion of righteousness. So let's look at the opening of the book of Romans. We're going to look at chapter 3 in a moment, but let's look at the opening. Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, we actually have some Bibles out on the tables out there. You can jump up and go grab one and use it, or you can maybe open up a, a phone app on, on your phone, or you can look on the screen. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul starts the letter to the Romans. He kind of explains who he is and how he's desiring to get to Rome. And then now in verse 16 of chapter 1 is when he begins to preach the gospel. Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then here's the word righteousness in verse 17. But in it, in it talking about in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So in these verses, Paul begins to preach the gospel, and he says that this gospel that he's preaching is intended to reveal to us the righteousness of God. Then when you go down to the very next verse, verse 18, he points towards 
the unrighteousness of ours, of ourselves. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what he says is the gospel is God's message of his righteousness to us and reveals his righteousness to us. And then our sinfulness, our ungodliness, our unrighteousness then suppresses the truth of the gospel and hides and runs from the truth of the gospel. It doesn't really sound very promising when you read Romans 1, 16 through 18. And then if you read the rest of chapter 1 and the rest of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, it definitely doesn't sound good at all. As he paints the picture of how broken and sinful this entire world is and how we are individually. But it doesn't sound very promising. Because in verses 16 and 17 it says God is righteous. And then verse 18 says that we are unrighteous. And because of our unrighteousness, we are subject to the wrath of God. Hang with me, though, because in the book of Romans, we find out that in Jesus, there is hope. We've sung about the hope of Jesus this morning, right? We've sung about standing before the throne of God and dressed in not my righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus. And so, in other words, Paul is going to teach to us and demonstrate for us that there is righteousness for the unrighteous. So I want you to kind of know the big picture as we get started. Now, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 9 through 20. The focal point of our message today is Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9 and reading through 20. Here's what Paul says. He's, remember, he's in the middle of an argument, not an argument like disagreement, but stating his case. This saying that Jews and Gentiles alike are both sinners. And so here's what he says in Romans 3, 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Not very promising words so far. Then in verse 13, their throat is an open grave that they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, not getting any better. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He unpacks our unrighteousness pretty clearly here. Then in verse 19, now we know that Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I want to pause for just a second. Look in verse 20. It says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified. I want you to know that the word justified here is actually the same Greek word as the word righteous or righteousness so anytime you see the word justify or justice or righteous or righteousness they're all from the same exact greek root word so just want to kind of share that with you to help us kind of wrap our brains around all of it so these verses that i've just read we see that paul is building his case that every single one of us are unrighteous 
Look down a couple more verses at verse 23. This may be one you've heard before. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is his perfection. The glory of God is his standard. The glory of God is his righteousness. And Paul says that every single one of us falls short of that, and every single one of us is a sinner, and he has spent those 12 verses and previous verses building his case. In fact, if you look at your notes, you'll see that I used the phrase that there's a charge here. On your notes it says the charge is all are under sin. In fact, look back at verse 9. In verse 9, at the end of it, he says, For we have already charged that all are under sin. This word charge or charged is, is a form of a legal accusation. It's interesting, especially as you read through the prophets, there are several places in the, in the scripture where God is almost standing, he's painting a picture of him standing in his heavenly courtroom and that his people are in front of him in a courtroom to present their case. And so whenever Paul says, you've already been charged by the fact that you're under sin, it's, it's this picture of a trial before God in his heavenly courtroom. And here's the charge that he makes. Here's the accusation. Here is the, 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 the pending charge, if you will. And that charge is that we are under sin. So what does it mean to be under sin? To be under sin means that we're not simply a sinner. To be under sin means that it's not just simply that occasionally we make mistakes. Occasionally we mess up. Uh, to be under sin means much more than just to say, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm human and it's okay. No, to be under sin means that sin has control or domination over us. And according to Paul, outside of God intervening, 100% of us are under sin. That we are enslaved, if you will, to sin. In fact, if you read further into the book of Romans, you'll see that Paul says, even after you become a follower of Jesus, there's this element of being under sin because he says, Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't end up doing. And the things I do want to do, I don't do because my flesh is at war with what I'm wanting to do for Christ. So Paul paints this picture that every single one of us are under sin. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is not a goof up. Sin is not something less than being nice. Sin is being unrighteous before a holy, perfect God. Let's stop excusing sin. We turn a blind eye to it. We, we say all of us are sinners. That's true. But we say it to dismiss our culpability of sin. It's true that we're all sinners, but it shouldn't dismiss us. As Paul would say, if someone were to say, Paul, you say we're all sinners, so should I keep sinning? He'd say, certainly not, absolutely not, by all means, no, don't keep sinning because you're a sinner, but instead own up to your unrighteousness. So, if... if we had a bigger body of water than this. Actually, it really wouldn't take much bigger than this. But if you had a little bit bigger body of water and I were to tie a heavy weight on it and throw you in it, 
would you be able to get out on your own? Absolutely not. You'd sink to the bottom. You would be under the weight of that weight and under the weight of the water. You wouldn't be able to press out and get out. There's this heaviness of being under its control. And so when it comes to being under sin, it's this idea that sin weighs us down. It makes us guilty before God. It exposes us to his wrath. We sometimes just need to sit and understand the gravity of sin. Sometimes we just need to sit and understand that we can't dodge the gravity of sin before a righteous God. And I think that if we'll slow down and read this passage, Romans 3, 9 through 20, and really take it line by line and stop and meditate and think and underline and highlight and circle and think about what it's saying we'll see that our sin is serious i know what some of you are thinking but alan alan i'm not as bad as the dude down the road i mean have you seen scott logan i'm not him we compare ourselves to different people it's like we've got this totem pole and we go, yeah, okay, maybe I'm a sinner, maybe I mess up, maybe I make mistakes, but I'm not as bad as that murderer down the street. I'm, I'm not as bad as that, that abusive father. I'm not, as bad as, and I'm not as bad as my neighbor. I mean, he's always so rude at me when I come out in the yard. I'm not bad. I'm not like that guy. Well, to help us understand this a little bit, imagine, if you will, that we go to Hawaii. If you want to get me a ticket to go to Hawaii, that's okay. We won't have to imagine them. But imagine we're in Hawaii. <laughs> and there's three guys, and they go, hey, how about we have a contest? Japan's not too far away. How about, how about we just all get in the water, and we swim to Japan? And these three guys go, okay, let's do it. Let's do it. The first guy that gets in the water is a non-swimmer, like literally doesn't know how to swim. Needless to say, he begins to sink as soon as the water gets over his head. The second guy's an okay swimmer, but he's really kind of weak at swimming. And so he flounders for about 60 feet, and then he sinks. Then there's the championship swimmer, the third guy. So here's the deal. He swims the first 20 miles, absolutely no problem. It's like a walk in the park. It's easy going. But then when you get to mile 30 through mile 40, he begins to struggle and ultimately, at mile 50, he sinks. Let me ask you a question. Does it really matter who was the better swimmer? Does it really matter if I'm better than the guy down the street? No, the standard was we're going from Hawaii to Japan. And if I don't make it, then I die. So the standard of I'm not as bad as the guy down the street does not hold water with God. Just as those three guys swimming all suffered the same fate, the truth of the matter is all of us are unrighteous. There are not differing degrees of unrighteousness. You're either righteous or you're unrighteous. There's no spectrum involved with this. And Paul makes it clear that in his charge, that all of us are under sin. Therefore, one way to say it is, all of us are unrighteous. Aren't you just so happy you came to church today? You know what the problem is, though? 
all too often, whenever we go to church, whenever we go to Bible study, whenever we sit around and talk with other Christians, we want to have it feel good to us, right? We want to be comfortable. But the reality is this. For us to truly understand who God is, to truly understand our need for Jesus, we cannot shrink back from this horrible fact that 100% of us are unrighteous. Let's keep going. Let's see the evidence. He's building a case. So on your notes it says the evidence is total depravity of man. Now I know that's kind of loaded words, so let's unpack that in just a second. But verses 10 through 18, we won't read them right this second, are a clear description of the evidence. Verse 9, he lays out the charge. Verse 10, he says, okay, let me build the evidence to prove the fact that all of you are under sin. And begins to describe their unrighteousness line after line after line. And those unrighteous statements are not just about the Romans, it's about you and I as well. To say that we have total depravity means that as sinners, every single part of our lives are impacted by our sin. To say that we have total depravity means that there's a natural inclination in all of us towards sin and that all of us are fundamentally corrupt at heart. It means that all of us are unrighteous. Every single one of us. And so these verses give all the proof that's needed to describe their, our depravity. Perhaps you've seen in your notes, I mean, sorry, in your Bible, in verses 10 through 18, there are several places where there's quotation marks, both the end at the beginning of the sentence and the end of the sentence. You're like, what's he quoting? And it says, as it's written, what's he quoting? He's quoting nine different Old Testament passages. And these passages come from Psalms, primarily, but it also comes from Proverbs and the prophet Isaiah. And what Paul is doing is referred to as stringing pearls. There's a, 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 a method that, that rabbis would use, and they call it stringing pearls because they'd take a pearl and then add a pearl and then add another pearl. You're like, What's, what are you talking about, pearls? It means that they would string together various verses from the Old Testament in order to build their argument. And so Paul takes his argument from the Old Testament passages in Psalms, Proverbs, and Isaiah to say this is what unrighteousness looks like. So let's look at kind of line by line, phrase by phrase, beginning there in verse 10. It says, none is righteous. I don't think we have to really unpack that any further. We, we've already uh, established the fact that all of us are sinners before God, and then the rest of these verses are going to describe that. So there's that first phrase, none is righteous. What I, what I want you to see, though, in all of this is that there's a universal tone to this. Because it says no one, everyone, none at all. It says all of us fit these categories. So I want you to see that our universal, complete, thorough sinfulness of mankind. The next phrase I want us to see, it says no one understands. It says absolutely no one understands. What that means is without Jesus in our life, it's impossible because of our brokenness, our sinfulness, our unrighteousness, it's impossible for us to understand God, to understand the things of God. And then he says, no one seeks for God, and all have turned aside. What Paul is saying is that we all deliberately run from God. You're like, no, 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 I don't think that's true. Like, I'm at church this morning. Like, I, I know friends who are seeking after God. No, Paul says that no one seeks after God, but instead all of us 
turn aside from him. What is he saying? I think a lot of people, when they seek for God, are actually seeking just for blessings in their life. I think sometimes whenever we say we're seeking for God, we're just looking for the answers to the prayers that we want. When we when say that we're seeking for God, sometimes that just means I'm looking for some kind of spiritual power or some kind of peace. But the reality is none of those things are what it really means to seek for God. To seek for God means to obey him and to follow him. And yet Paul says all of us are, are unrighteous. Truth of the matter is none of us can seek after God on our own. Here's what Jesus says about the topic. Listen to this verse. You may want to jot it down. John 6, verse 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me. In other words, no one can seek after me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So if you are seeking after God, if a friend of yours is seeking after God, we're not seeking after God on our own. Instead, it's God who's drawing us to him. This is good news in the sense that God takes the initiative to draw sinful, unrighteous people to himself. Then another phrase that we see in verse 12 is that no one does good. You're like, whoa, 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 slow down here. Like, I'm a good person. My grandpa was a good person, and Paul's saying no one does good. What is the deal with that? Here's what the idea of doing good looks like. There are two criteria for doing good. Here's the first one. There's the external. To do good means to have right behavior. So there's the external side of doing good. But likewise, you also need the second part. The second criteria is internal, and that is having the right motive. And so to do good not, doesn't just simply mean doing the right behavior, but it means doing the right behavior with the right motive or attitude. Parents, do you simply want your kids to obey you, or do you want you, them to obey you with the right motives? You're like, dude, I'll just go get by with obedience. That's fine with me. No, the reality is we don't want our kids just to obey because we told them so, because one day they're going to be out the house, right? We want them to learn why to do the right behavior. And Paul says that none of us on our own can fulfill those two criteria all of the time. Perhaps we fulfill the first one, the right behavior, but oftentimes we don't fulfill the second one. And then in verses 13 through 18, he uses metaphors. You, did you notice those metaphors? He talks about an open grave. He talks about venom of asps, which is a type of snake. He, he talks about feet that are swift to shed blood. He, he's talking about all of these metaphors. So let's look at, I think, three main categories that these metaphors refer to. Whenever Paul unpacks these metaphors in verses 13 through 18, he's looking at three main categories of sin. The first one is in the area of our speech. Look at verse 13. It says our throat's like an open tongue, uh, grave. It says that our tongues deceive. It says that there's poison under our lips. It says our mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Not very promising words about our words. But all too often as humans, our speech gets us in trouble. What does Jesus say about our speech? Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. You may want to jot it down. Matthew 12, 34 says this. He's, he's, he's kind of laying out some serious uh, accusations and charges. And here, here's what he says. You brood of vipers. 
How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Jesus is saying the problem is not really our mouth. That's a symptom of where the real problem is, right? It's what's on the inside. It's what's in the heart. But Paul says that because of our unrighteousness, out of our mouths comes ruin and destruction and problems. Then look at verse 15 and 16. Here he hits the category of our relationship with other people. So the first category was sin in the area of speech. This category is in our relationships with others. He talks about evil deeds. He talks about violence. He talks about destruction. He talks about misery. The, the, the metaphor he uses is talking about how our feet are swift to shed blood. And for some people, literally, they want to shed blood as in be a murderer. And for others of us, it's figuratively speaking, as we come in our relationships with other people and stab them in the back. Paul says that our relationships with others points to our unrighteousness. And then it's all summed up in verses 17 and 18. It says, the way of peace they have not known. This idea of peace here carries with it the peace that comes from the Messiah, the peace that comes from God and God alone. It's not the absence of war. It's not the absence of arguments. It's the peace that comes from knowing Jesus. And he says the reason that we don't have peace is because there's no fear of God before their eyes. If you looked out on our world lately, there's no fear of God whatsoever. All throughout the Old Testament, we see verses that sound like this one. Let me read Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So when Paul, in the Old Testament as well, uses the word fear, does that mean we should be shaking our boots because God's going to strike us down with lightning? No, it's fear in the sense that he is sovereign, he is holy, he is perfect, he is big, he is grand, he is glorious, he is righteous, we are not. It's reverence, awe, respect. But according to Paul, there is no fear of God. This world's a mess. But you know what? All too often when we think about the brokenness of our world, we look at the externals and we point our fingers and say, this is where the problems lie. Why is our world a mess? I'll tell you why it's a mess. It's because of those stupid politicians. It's because of the media. It's because of racism. It's because of abortion. It's because of drugs. It's because of religious extremists. It's because of other ideologies that I don't agree with. But the reality is those, those are not the problems. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Don't get me wrong. These things I listed, especially when it comes to abortion and, and drug abuse and racism and other sins like that, those are sins and we shouldn't do them and we know that it is causing problems in our world, but the problem is when we begin to point our finger out there to say that's where the problem is, that's where it is, that's where it is, that's where it is, and we don't stop to reflect on where am I contributing to the problems of this world? Where is my heart not right with God? When wondering what the problem with our world is, I encourage us to look inside our own hearts. 
I realized that even if my heart or your heart was perfect with God, which it's not going to hit that threshold, but if it was, we still would have problems in our world. I get that. Sin is still out there. But the biggest way that we can have an impact in our world is not by pointing the finger, but instead by reflecting on our own contribution to this world. So, we see the charge all of us are under sin. We see the evidence that man is totally depraved or broken or wicked or unrighteous. Let's look at the last aspect of the court case, and that's the verdict. You know that anytime there's a court case, there has to be a verdict decided based on the charges and based on the evidence. And here's what the verdict is, and we find it in verses 19 and 20. And on your notes, it says, Everyone is subject to God's wrath. That's the verdict. So far, not very good news for us today. All of us are unrighteous. All of us are under sin. All of us are depraved in our sin. And all of us are subject to God's judgment. Look down at verses 19 and 20. At the end of verse 19, it says, The whole world will be held accountable to God. This word, this phrase, held accountable to God, has this idea of an accused person who doesn't refute or, or, or say the charges against them are wrong. Instead, they acknowledge and see that the charges are right. And when God says that we are under sin, when God says we are unrighteous, when God says we are depraved, those charges are accurate. And since we are guilty, it says that all of us will be held accountable by God. In other words, all of us are liable to his punishment. And then look down in verse 20. In verse 20 it says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And, and see, what some of Paul's readers were thinking, well, I'm, a, I'm a Jew and I've got the law and I know what's right and I'm, and I'm following the law and surely that will make me right before God. And Paul says, no, the purpose of the law is for you to see your sinfulness. It's not to make you right before God because it's impossible for you to obey the law. Remember, to be good, to do good means to do the right behavior with the right motive 100% of the time. And yet, you and I do similar things. We, we, we think that we can pass on God's judgment or avoid his judgment based on our performance, based on our works. I tried to live a good life. I, I'm a member of the church. I gave to a charity. I didn't really do anything all that bad, but the reality is none of our own righteousness is truly righteous. Look at verse 19. When he talks about those under the law are still unrighteous, it says at the end of verse 19, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable. But I, I want you to see that phrase, every mouth may be stopped. Guys, it's time for us to stop moving our mouths, stop making excuses, stop justifying our behavior. We are unrighteous, simple as that. Because you see, if I move my mouth to argue with God and say, I'm not all that bad, I'm not like that guy down the street, then we are not going to be able to see his solution to our sin problem. So this morning, as we've walked through Romans 9, sorry, Romans 3, 9 through 20, we've seen all the bad news, right? I would not be a very good pastor if I left us right there. 
and said, okay, come back next week and we'll talk about the good news. No, I've got to point us to the good news. And so in the words of a dude by the name of Paul Harvey, I want to tell you the rest of the story. Look down at the very next two verses. On your notes, I have Romans 3.22, but I want to read verse 21 as well. So in 9 through 20, he's told us that we're unrighteous. Not a single one of us have a hope. And I love verse 21. Anytime in the Bible, especially in Paul's writings, you see the word but, that's good news. I think. There may be times where he goes, you should do this, but you're not. So I don't want to go on record saying that. But typically, but is good news. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, and here's the good news, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Guys, we are unrighteous, but the rest of the story is that God's righteousness is available to us, and how is it available? Through faith in Jesus Christ for everyone who believes. This morning, I've spent a whole lot of time unpacking the bad news of our unrighteousness before God. We have to know the bad news in order to get to the good news. Because if we're not careful, we'll make it all about the good news and we won't even acknowledge that we're really sinners and we'll just say, yeah, I want that warm, fuzzy feeling. Yeah, I want to be good with the big guy in the sky. Yeah, I want to get dunked in the water. Yeah, I want to be a member of the church. Yeah, I want to be a good guy or a good girl. No, we must see our unrighteousness in our sins so that it leads us to understand our need for the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ to be placed upon us. Ultimately, the way that we have righteousness for the unrighteous is when we acknowledge that we are sinners in need of salvation through Jesus and Him alone. So here's the good news. Even though you and I are sinful, broken people. Even though you and I are unrighteous before God, even though you and I are subject to God's wrath and judgment, even though you and I, according to what Paul says later in Romans, deserve death, for the wages of sin is death. But the good news is that we can have salvation through Jesus Christ and Him alone. If you're watching online or if you're here in the building, if you came to celebrate a baptism or if you're here because your spouse drug you here, if you're here just because you're supposed to do it because that's what Sunday mornings are all about, stop and reflect and think, do you understand that before a holy, perfect God, you stand in judgment because you are unrighteous? And have you turned in faith to Jesus Christ to ask him to forgive you of your sins, not because of anything you have done, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf, just as Harley Kate told us a few minutes ago, a few minutes ago that Jesus had died for her sins. Do not leave this morning without saying yes to Jesus. And I can guarantee you this, based on what we read from Paul a moment ago when he says no one seeks after God if there's something stirring in your heart right now it ain't you God's doing the work say yes to him trust in him he's stirring you 
right now to say, you, that's you, you are a sinner, you need me, I have grace to offer to you. That's not my words, that's Jesus' words, and I want to forgive you of your sins. You see, everyone needs the gospel. Everyone needs the gospel because that, my friend, is the only way to his righteousness. So what do we do with this? Here are four possible, couldn't speak very clearly, four possible next steps. And I believe that every one of us fits one of these categories. Would you consider taking one of these next steps? And if this is you, I'd encourage you to make a commitment to God right now in this place to take one of these steps. If, if you would be interested, grab a, a, a connection card there in the chair in front of you and, and mark your decision. Turn that in the offering box in a little bit so that we can follow up with your decision. Here are four possible next steps. Number one, accept the good news. You've heard the bad news. We finished with the good news. Accept the good news. Turn from your sin and from your own efforts and trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone for salvation because when you stand before a holy, perfect God, there's not one bit of evidence that you can say, but, 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 but Jesus, Jesus I, I, I was okay. I was a good person. I did good. I fed the poor. Trust in the good news of Jesus, a free gift that's offered to you. Say yes to the good news. Here's the second possible next step. Talk to all of us that are followers of Jesus already. If you're a Christian who's trusted in Jesus already, if you've experienced the righteousness of Jesus, then let me say to you with all boldness, stop living in sexu- uh, uh, sorry in r- unrighteous. Let me start all over. Sorry. Stop living an unrighteous life. Stop living an unrighteous life. And so this morning, some of us may need to confess sin. Because we've experienced the righteousness of God, but we're living just like the unrighteous. Could be lying, could be cheating, could be greed, could be gossip, could be a sexual sin, it could be the sin of partiality, it could be an uncontrolled anger, it could be your tendency to label other people. But is there a sin you need to confess today? Not because that removes your salvation, but because it means you're not living in the identity that Christ has already given you. Is there a sin you need to confess? Here's the third possible next step. I mentioned this in my message earlier. Stop pointing to external causes when you think about brokenness in the world. Don't just look at the external causes of brokenness, but address the sin and brokenness in your own life. How can you begin to turn the tide of where our country or our nation or, or, uh, or where our community or where your society is headed? How can you stem that tide by beginning to live a more righteous life? And then number four, I would encourage you to make a commitment to find one person this week that you can tell the good news to. Could you make a commitment and think of that person by name right now that I'm going to talk to so-and-so and point them to the hope of Jesus Christ? It could be a family member. It could be a neighbor. It could be a coworker, It could be a teammate. It could be someone that you bump into at the store. But would you make a commitment this week to find that one person to share the hope of Christ with? 
Paul makes it clear. 100% of us are unrighteous, which means 100% of us need to hear the gospel. And some of you this morning need to say yes to the gospel for the first time. And others of us need to go out and share that hope with others around us. I'm going to pray for us in just a second. And after the prayer, we'll sing a song or two as a church family. And as we do that, I would encourage you to use this time to reflect on what God's word has said to you this morning. Is there something that God has spoken to your heart about? Something you need to say yes to? Something you need to say no to? Something you need to confess? Something you need to respond to? Then I would encourage you to do that by marking on your connection card or praying here at the altar or coming uh, and sharing with me. But let's say yes to the things that God's leading us to this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to be here today and to worship you. God, we thank you for reminding us of our brokenness and our unrighteousness. God, we know that none of us can do it on our own. That we need the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. The only righteousness that we will ever really be able to hold on to is the righteousness that's given to us whenever we turn in repentance of our sins and trust in Jesus and him alone for salvation and then you place Jesus's righteousness upon us and it's not our own righteousness it's 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 his and yet because of his righteousness we are in right standing with you and we can experience life in the here and now and in the future in your power and your strength God I pray that you would be with us in this moment help us to respond as you're leading us to respond to you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?